Prayer is an appropriate topic as we turn our attention now to Psalm 90. And prayer is an appropriate way to begin, so please pray with me now. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work you are doing in the Turkish church, and we thank you for allowing our church here to be part of that work. We pray that the non-believing wife and the hotel manager will both come to Christ. We also pray that the 20 people who attended the seminar will walk with Christ without fear. We pray that even now you are raising up the next team from Harvest Decatur to travel to Adana. We pray that you are also preparing each of us to hear you speak through your word this morning. Your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts and bring our thoughts and intentions into alignment with yours. Use this time today to transform us more and more into the image of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So follow along as I read Psalm 90. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord. How long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish the work of our hands upon us, Yes, establish the work of our hands. May God add blessing to the reading of his word. Whenever we start looking at a new book of the Bible, it is worthwhile to try to get a sense of why it was written and what the circumstances were when it was written. We want to know the legacy, that is, the location, the essence, the genre, the author, the context, and the years. And with this book, identifying the genre is pretty easy. It is a psalm, which makes sense since the sermon series is Summer in the Psalms. A psalm is musical poetry, 
It is a son. It's intended to be son. Psalm 90 is specifically congregational in nature. The first person pronouns are plural. It speaks to the situation of all people, not just one person. Now, if you've followed our series this summer or last summer, you know that not all psalms are created equal. There are different kinds of psalms. Broadly speaking, psalms are either psalms of lament or psalms of praise. But even within those categories, we can draw distinctions. For example, last week, Pastor Ryan preached on a psalm of trust. The week before that, Mike Vernon preached on a psalm of penitence and thanksgiving. Three weeks ago, Paul Roberts preached on a psalm of individual lament. Psalm 90 is a psalm of congregational or community lament. That means it was written in response to some source of anguish or distress that was or is common to everyone. The essence and the author of the book are relatively easy to identify, too. All we have to do is read the superscription, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. The book is essentially a prayer. Now, you might ask, aren't all Psalms prayers? The answer is yes, sort of. All of them can inspire prayer, and many can be recited as prayers, but not all of them are addressed directly to God. Some Psalms are addressed to the reader. Psalm 90 addresses the Lord directly. From start to finish, it is in the language of prayer. When we combine the ideas of lament and prayer together, we get the picture that the book is a prayer for mercy. It is a prayer for God to remove the source of anguish and restore his people to a right relationship with him. That's why I've titled my sermon today, Restoring Prayer. The superscription tells us that Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses. That means it was either written by Moses or dedicated to Moses. If Moses wrote it, Psalm 90 is by far the most ancient of all the Psalms. We know from the Old Testament that Moses occasionally broke out in song. In Exodus 15, Moses led the Israelites in singing a song of praise after their miraculous escape from Egypt. And in Deuteronomy 32, Moses recited the words of a song of instruction. Moreover, this prayer for mercy is similar in spirit to what Moses prayed on Mount Sinai, after Aaron and the Israelites made the golden calf. So I understand the superscription to mean that Moses wrote this psalm. He probably didn't write the superscription, though, because it identifies Moses as the man of God. That'd be quite a prideful thing to write about oneself. And we know Moses was one of the most humble people on earth in his lifetime, because he told us so in Numbers 12. Now, if Moses wrote the psalm, the lamenting nature of it suggests that he wrote it after the exodus from Egypt while the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, which would make the year of writing approximately 1450 B.C. Quite a few scholars think the psalm was a response to the events recorded in Numbers chapter 14. So keep a finger at Psalm 90, but turn with me there to Numbers 14. Recall the situation. Moses had sent spies into Canaan, and when they came back, Joshua and Caleb gave an encouraging report and wanted the Israelites to enter the promised land. 
The other spies, however, gave a discouraging report that persuaded the Israelites that they would not be able to take the land from the people already living there. We'll pick up the story at verse 2 of chapter 14. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. God, of course, was not happy. Look at verse 11. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Moses interceded for the people and God pardoned them, but he still promised judgment. In verse 22, he says, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in this wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despised me shall see it. He goes on in verse 29 to say, Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number, listed in the census from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. God concluded his pronouncement in verses 34 and 35. According to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. If there is ever a reason to lament, this was it. Moses responded by composing Psalm 90 as a prayer to God. What I want to focus on today are the pattern of Moses' prayer and the particular requests he made. I think both aspects can serve as useful examples to us. We might not be accustomed to hearing God himself pronounce judgment on us, but there are times when we are rebuked or reproved or chastised or disciplined. When those times happen, we want to respond appropriately. I would also maintain that adopting a pattern of prayer similar to what Moses followed will help us avoid situations when we need to be rebuked or chastised. So write this down as the first step in Moses' example of how to pray. Exaltation. Exaltation. Follow along as I read verses 1 and 2 again. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Moses began his prayer by exalting the Lord. Restoring prayer includes exaltation. Exaltation restores a correct perspective on the relationship between creator and creature. Many of our sins and failures stem from having an incorrect perspective on that relationship. 
Maybe we have a diminished or limited view of who God is. Maybe we try to usurp authority from him that is rightfully his. Maybe we look to someone or something else to give us what only God can. Maybe we try to control God or hem him in so that he, was no, he has no choice but to do our will. When I was 23 years old and in my first year of graduate school, I thought I had figured God out. I had accumulated a lot of Bible knowledge and I had seen many answers to prayer. I was convinced God listened to my prayers and answered them the way I wanted him to. I didn't realize it at the time, but I had adopted a kind of works-based sanctification where I would prosper if I faithfully prayed and studied my Bible. It's not much of an overstatement to say that I had made God in my image. Now, don't misunderstand. I thought my beliefs were growing more in alignment with God's word. I was blind to the flaws of my theology, and I was blind to the fact that my flawed theology was driving my understanding of scripture. In a six-week span in the summer of 1993, my world fell apart. I won't go into all of the details here, but suffice it to say that I experienced four crises. Any one of them alone would have been enough to stagger me and cause my theology to collapse like a house of cards. Having four in quick succession was overwhelming. I spent the next three months in a state of despair. My prayers never seemed to make it past the ceiling of my bedroom or the roof of my car. Eventually, God ended his silence. Or maybe the more accurate way to put it is that I started hearing him again and seeing his hand at work. Light started shining in my soul again. As I surveyed the wreckage of the theology I had constructed, I began to see that one of the things God was teaching me was that he is too big for me to figure out. He was showing me that he is God and I am not. And that's what exaltation does. It reminds us that God is God and we are not. In verse one, Moses identified God as our dwelling place in all generations. A dwelling place offers protection and shelter. That's one of the things the Israelites were confused or had an incorrect perspective about. Most of the camp came to the conclusion that Egypt was the best dwelling place for them. But God is our true dwelling place. We are never more at home than when we are in fellowship with him. We are never more protected than when we are in right relationship with him. He is our shelter. And he doesn't just provide protection and shelter. He also provides permanence. During my period of despair, one belief I never lost was that I would find my shelter in God. I think that's why my despair seemed so intense at times, because I was trying to turn to him, but he was not providing the immediate relief I sought. I'm glad I didn't give up, though. As I came out of the despair and started regaining my enthusiasm, I attended a conference where I heard from a missionary serving in Istanbul. That conference set me on the path that led to my short-term mission trip to Istanbul in 1995. That trip led to my prayer for a Turkish wife and my prayer to be able to proclaim God's word to the Turkish people. If my world hadn't fallen apart in 1993, I probably wouldn't be here giving the message that I am today. As I said earlier, exaltation restores the correct perspective on the relationship between the creator and the creature. 
Exaltation not only lifts up the creator, but it also distinguishes between the creator and his creatures. In verses 3 through 6, Moses draws out the disparity between God and people. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. God is from everlasting to everlasting. People, on the other hand, are transitory. Verse 3 says, you return man to dust. The word for dust means something pulverized or crushed. Verse 4 states that a millennium to God is like a watch in the night. A watch in the night most likely lasted about three or four hours. It's brief. The choice of a thousand years for the comparison is intriguing. If you think back to Genesis, even the longest recorded lifespans fell short of a thousand years. Several people lived past 900 years. Methuselah was the oldest at 969 years, but no one cracked a thousand. So a thousand years is longer than any human being has ever lived, but to God it is practically a blink of the eye. God has always been God, and we have not. Verses 5 and 6 compare us to grass. How are we like grass? Well, we wither when conditions heat up. We wither in old age. We are mown down by disaster. Human life is frail and short in comparison to God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. So starting our prayers with exaltation is a good way to start. Write this down as the second step in Moses' example of how to pray. Contrition. Contrition. Restoring prayer includes contrition because contrition restores justice in our relationship with God. Notice how the tone changes in verses 7 through 11. For we are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? In these verses, the death of people is connected to God's wrath against sin. Sin is why our lives are transitory. Death is not a debt to nature, but a debt to the justice of God. Moses is acknowledging here that we deserve God's wrath because of our sinfulness. Even the sins we try to keep secret are exposed before God. God has every reason to be angry, and we have reason to be contrite. Let's focus again on the Israelites. Their slavery in Egypt was emblematic of our slavery to sin. Moses was a forerunner of Jesus Christ, and the Exodus was symbolic of salvation. The promised land served to point us to heaven and our everlasting dwelling place with God. Wandering in the wilderness, therefore, was symbolic of our lives on earth. 
When I read in Numbers how the Israelites wanted to go back to Egypt, I sometimes shake my head in amazement and ask, how could they? But don't we do the same thing in our hearts? When we sin, we return to our own Egypts. We return to the habits Christ rescued us from. We are as deserving of God's wrath as the Israelites were. By way of application, contrition is not enough for us. As believers 2,000 years after Christ's crucifixion and as members of the church universal, we are commanded to confess our sins. We're supposed to name them and agree with God that they are sins. So contrition and confession should be genuinely intertwined. One should lead to the other. The good news, of course, is that our sins have been forgiven on the basis of Christ's work on the cross. Moses began his prayer with exaltation and followed it with contrition. He then shifted to the third stage, which is supplication. Supplication. Supplication is the action of asking or begging for something earnestly or humbly. Supplication naturally follows exaltation and contrition because exaltation and contrition fix our attention on what we truly need or what is truly good for us. Restoring prayer includes supplication because supplication restores tenderness to our relationship with God. In verses 12 through 17, Moses makes six requests of God. We will look at them one by one, starting with verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The first thing Moses asks for is wisdom. It's not general wisdom, but wisdom for numbering our days. That is wisdom to understand how few are the days we have. If Moses wrote this psalm after the episode recorded in Numbers 14, then this request is particularly poignant because nearly everyone who was 20 years old or older was just told that life would be over within 40 years. It occurred to me as I was preparing this sermon that I am facing a similar countdown as the Israelites. Based on statistics of life expectancy and my family background, the odds are pretty good that I will be gone within 40 years. I want to number my days well. I pray verse 12 as my own prayer nearly every time I read it. And I think God has been answering the prayer. When I first started working as a professor, I found my work to be purposeful and satisfying. I still find it to be purposeful and satisfying, but something is different now. My attachment to my career is decreasing. Getting married and acquiring a family has had a lot to do with that. And so has the realization that I am past the halfway point of my work life. Some more subtle factors have also contributed, though. I've abandoned some professional goals and ambitions I once had. The personnel in our department have changed. Gone are two men who were not just vocational mentors, but also brothers in Christ. Affirmations of my performance are less frequent than they used to be. And with increasing frequency, I'm encountering disrespectful remarks or behaviors. I believe God is using all of those things to answer my prayer and help me number my days more wisely. He's been turning my attention toward how to make the most fruitful use of the rest of my life. 
How are you doing at numbering your days? Do you recognize how limited your time might be so that you use it with wisdom? Are you following pursuits that have lasting value? Is verse 12 a prayer you pray? Is it a prayer you're willing to have answered? Second request Moses made was for compassion. Look at verse 13. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. When Moses says, return, O Lord, he is saying something along the lines of, come back to us, O Lord. The NIV renders it, relent, O Lord. Moses is praying for a restoration of fellowship and communion with God. Moses seems to know that God's compassion will flow as soon as that connection is reestablished. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, your prayer should be much like Moses's. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for a relationship with him and pray for his compassion on you. For those of us who already follow Jesus, we can, we can take the prayer one step further and pray that God will express his compassion through us or that we will have greater compassion on others. The third request Moses made was for love. In verse 14, we read, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Notice he says, in the morning, he was implying that their current alienation or estrangement from God was like a period of night and darkness. When this period of darkness would come to an end, morning would break and God's love would pour in. Moses was also setting up a bit of a contrast with verses five and six. New grass flourishes in the morning, but only for a time. It might be filled with water at the beginning of the day, but the grass dries out and fades and withers by evening. On the other hand, for believers, God's love is capable of satisfying us and continuing to satisfy us. There is stability that comes from knowing that God loves you, that you can't do anything to make him love you more, and you can't do anything to make him love you less. Do you really believe God loves you? Do you really believe you can't do anything to make him love you less? Pray that you will believe God loves you and that your love for him and your love for others increase. The fourth request Moses made was for gladness. Verse 15, make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Gladness is the joy that springs up in us when we are renewed by God's compassion and love. Only God can make our lives as full of gladness as they otherwise would have been full of affliction. The fifth request Moses made was for God's splendor. Follow along in verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Here, Moses goes beyond asking God to open himself to us and asks him to share himself with us. He is asking for us to be able to partake of God's divine nature, which brings us to Moses' sixth request, namely God's favor. Verse 17 reads, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. 
When we share in the work of the everlasting God, we feel the most worthwhile. Just be aware, though, that not everyone we encounter will appreciate or welcome God's work. I'll ask the same questions I asked earlier about verse 12. Is verse 17 a prayer you pray? Is it a prayer you are willing to have answered? So Moses gave us an example for how to pray that restores our perspective on our relationship with God, restores justice in our relationship with God, and restores tenderness to our relationship with God. I hope you are willing to pray those kinds of prayers and have those kinds of prayers answered. In closing, let me remind you that none of us has the same task that Moses had. None of us is called to lead a large population of people to a new homeland. But many of us are leading small populations of people in pursuit of righteousness. And we are all wandering in the wilderness of life. We all hear the tempting call from Egypt from time to time. We all need restoring prayer. I urge you to follow Moses' example when you pray personally. And I urge you to follow it when you pray in small group. Remember, Moses' psalm is congregational. It applies to group settings. So when you pray, follow Moses' pattern. Exalt the Lord. Confess your sin with a contrite heart. Ask God to open himself to you and share himself with you. Let's put that into practice now. Dear Lord, you are the creator. You are the one who was, who is, and who will be. There is no proportion between our lives and yours. We are frail and transient. You are strong and permanent. You are our protection and shelter. Our home is not in this country or that country. You are our home. You are also holy. You are pure. You are good. We deserved your judgment, but you showed us mercy. In your compassion, you forgave us. In your love, you justified us. Yet we continue to transgress your law and miss the mark. Purify us according to your compassion. Give us confidence in your love. Make our joy full. Give us wisdom to appreciate how short our time is and to use it effectively. Make your power great in our lives and show your favor on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.